Nigel here from the UK. I totally back Mike up on that. That was our experience uh, a few years ago. It's been my military experience, and we've been running telemedicine follow-up clinics now for almost a month, and we're hardly x-raying anyone. Uh, we're hardly bringing anyone back, and we're going purely on their symptoms. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. Hello, I'm Samir Mehta, Chair of the OTA Education Committee, and welcome to the OTA Podcast. This series of episodes is a replay of the March 27th OTA webinar entitled COVID-19, Preparedness and Orthopedic Trauma OTA Panel Discussion. We've taken the webinar audio and divided it into three episodes to make it more accessible for podcasts. In this third episode in our series discussing the current COVID-19 crisis, you will hear our panel discussion on alternate care models such as telemedicine, admit versus send home, and outpatient alternatives. Joining the panel are Drs. Bill Ritchie, Ken Eagle, Nigel Rossiter, Mike Gardner, Michael McKee, Hassan Mir, and Andrew Schmidt. We're going to shift to the third part of this webinar, which is looking at some alternative models for care delivery. I'm going to jump right in and ask the panel, and anybody can respond, because it's, and it's one of the questions that came up, is has there been or is there concern or, or consideration for shifting to conservative care for what some would consider equivocal fractures, clavicles, proximal humeri, uh, someone mentioned both bone forearm, a distal radius. Is there discussion at your centers or have you changed practice patterns based on disease? Uh, and anybody on the panel can answer that. Uh, we've been forced to. It's been a, because uh, we've got so many other cases, we're managing almost everything non-operatively unless there's a very good reason to operate. Yeah, so in California, unfortunately, we're not to that point yet. We might, but I guess the way we stand right now, uh, having haven't had to make those hard decisions, I I hope it doesn't get to that. You know, it, it's it's one more variable in the in the risk benefit equation for fractures. But I, you know, I still think we we really owe it to our patients first and foremost, uh, even in the midst of all this, to treat them how we best think their outcome would be maximized. It sounds, Nigel, like you suggested that. Some of these uh, geriatric fractures that you're even, you know, hip fractures that we typically consider emergent or urgent at least to get them done in, in 24, 48 hours, that you are becoming more non-operative on those. Did I hear that correctly? Uh, and that, uh, is that because of their age and their risk of problems with respiratory problems? You can't afford any extra vents to be consumed. Not with the hip fractures yet. Any patient that's actually admitted and needs surgery, they've been admitted for surgery, we're operating on. But those that we would see in a fracture clinic setting, so the proximal humeri, the clavicles, the distal radiuses, some of the ankles, they're all being treated non-operatively. So in Florida, there's an interesting thing happening at several of the surrounding private hospitals and that they're requiring the surgeon to fill out an attestation form for every single case that you're going to do, which really makes my partners who are covering a lot of the private hospitals think uh, twice and three times before what they're actually taking to the operating room. 
So from a process perspective, let me ask, for those people who are still operating, let's say on that uh, proximal humerus fracture or maybe the clavicle fracture that you would do as an outpatient, they come to your emergency room, they've got a clavicle fracture, they're diagnosed with that. Are you having them, are you operating on them immediately? Like bring them to the hospital, let's fix them and send them home the next day. Or are you sending them home, having them come back to clinic, signing paperwork, then coming to the day that day of the OR, doing them as an outpatient. You see where I'm going with this. You're, you, you talk about social distancing, trying to limit contacts, yet we're having them come to the hospital on multiple trips when we could just bring them in and get them done and send them home. I'm just asking what models people are using or considering for treating some of these uh, fractures that, that Nigel's group is just not fixing at this point. Yeah, so we, with our social distancing out here, there's a number of bikers and we've gotten a number of upper extremity injuries. And yeah, so we will um, talk to them in the ER and if it's operative, we'll schedule it and send them home. And then they'll come in a few days later. This happened a number of times this past week. They'll come in a few days later, get a, get a block, get surgery, get absorbable sutures so they don't need to come back and go home that same day. Other people doing similar things or are people using alternative models? We're doing uh, we're, a we're similar doing thing. We would just, uh, if there is room available that day, we'll you know, admit them, get, do, do their surgery, and advocate for them to go home because they're already there. Uh, if there's room, if there's no room, then, yeah, we'd send them out and uh, just schedule their surgery and have them come back. But that could all change very easily within days. That's changed within yeah. a week for us. I would stress that that's a reasonable um, uh, approach now. It is at our uh, institution now as well, but the, that can very quickly change with uh, the passage of time, especially if the same thing happens in your center that's happened in New York or other places. Two things. I think patients are more accepting of closed management now than they were a month ago, recognizing Correct. the risks of being in a, in a hospital environment. So I think that is useful to us for those tweener cases that we know that could do pretty well without surgery, just surgery does have some advantages. So I think that's good. I'd like to put out there that hasn't been touched on, but I think really important in the context of all of us is we're seeing a lot of stress between, you know, among our staff, faculty, residents, and I can't emphasize enough in the terms of disaster management, which this is, that maintaining an awareness of this and seeing it in yourself as well, but addressing those needs by providing clear information, as clear as you can give it, and really making sure their issues are being addressed in a timely way. And they should not be blown off because otherwise you'll get a, a worse disaster. With our last few minutes, uh, there are a few questions, but I wanted to touch base on what are you all doing to educate your learners, whether it's residents or fellows? How are you using this time, uh, both time that we have to, to, because we're somewhat limited in what we're doing, and also time in the sense that uh, you've got residents who are, your services are, are somewhat dwindling in terms of the, the number of residents you're seeing it, it, it coming through. How are you guys using, uh, or what resources are you using to help uh, keeping the education going for your learners? We're still having uh, our weekly didactic conferences, uh, but through a uh, Zoom or WebEx format. And our, our educational programs continue the same, but, all, but nothing in person. 
Yeah, so we've got an assigned reading curriculum that was already in place before that they're sticking with. Uh, in addition, they're doing the chief residents have assigned tons of, uh, you know, uh, various tests that they're to take each week. And uh, they're collaborating and watching the same videos each week as well. So our curriculum already was uh, subspecialty of the week. And they're just sticking to that and uh, watching the same video online sources together and reading and taking the same exams. Yeah, we as of next week we're going to uh, Zoom Grand Rounds and Zoom M and M and some core lectures and and yeah, we tasked our elective faculty to really uh, come come with a robust educational you know plan and traumas in that too. Um, but we're just just a little busier than the others right now. Speaking of which, have you seen your non-trauma faculty? want to engage in doing uh, trauma cases or working with you guys to, to do volume, given the, the nature of uh, the U.S. compensation model? <laughs> yeah, not, not yet, to be honest, but, uh, but we're not overflowing with volume where we need help either. Yeah. So at our place, what they're doing is they're actually, we, had, we shut down our clinics last week because, one, there was a physician in our group, uh, non-orthopedist, who was exposed. But our clinics are going to reopen next week on a very limited basis, and all of our non-trauma guys and even some of our trauma guys will fill in, seeing limited clinics for a lot of these acute fractures or acute issues that couldn't come to the hospital or couldn't uh, we or wanted we wanted them to stay away from the ED. Is anybody using virtual reality or augmented reality as part of their educational platform? I'll take that as a no. In addition, how are people doing telemedicine, and is it is it feasible for orthopedic trauma, particularly in the setting of having to get x-rays and, and monitor reductions? How is everyone utilizing telemedicine, and that, that's usually the, the hard part. It's not like scoping a knee and show me your range of motion of your knee, but, hey, I, I closed reduced to both bones, and now I'm sending you home. Now what? Yeah, yeah just quickly, I, um, and it's quite okay. good. Uh, like you have an elderly patient with a hip fracture, went home or a nursing facility, having them see your face, just checking in on how they're doing, I think uh, has a positive impact. And I think we can understand that not every patient needs an x-ray at every visit. Uh, we probably do more x-rays as multiple studies have shown for ankle fractures, hip fractures, wrist fractures than you need if they're outside the critical window or if they have, don't have that critical need, I think we can do quite a bit without an x-ray. I think it just takes a careful, thoughtful process to decide which ones are good to delay the x-ray and which ones you really need to have come in as a risk-benefit decision. That's an excellent point. It's Mike McKee here. One thing we did notice with the SARS in Toronto when follow-up follow became a huge issue then and, and telehealth wasn't as good as it is now but it was amazing how few negative consequences there were of not seeing some of these patients post-operatively uh, or post-injury. Reamed, locked, femoral and tibial nails, uh, fixation, plate fixation of both bones or humeral fractures. There really was very little downside in those group, in certain groups to not seeing them. Certainly it's good socially for the patient to see you post-operatively, but in actual fact, the number of times you change course for a lot of these uh, more uh, reliable operations is very limited 
And that was one thing that was uh, clearly brought home in, in uh, SARS when limit, limitations of fault were, were routine. And there's a number of papers that would clearly support that as well going forward. So that's something we may learn from this this crisis, if there's anything good to come from it. That's Nigel here from the UK. I totally back Mike up on that. That was our experience a few years ago. It's been my military experience. And we've been running telemedicine follow-up clinics now for almost a month. And we're hardly x-raying anyone. Uh, we're hardly bringing anyone back. And we're going purely on their symptoms. And like the guy falling off the Empire State, so far so good. <laughs> are, what are people using? Are, they, are most of you doing telemedicine? Are you doing video medicine? If you're doing video, are there certain platforms that you're using, recognizing that, uh, you know, if you have any conflicts, you'll declare them? But uh, how are you communicating with your patients and which platform are you using? Microsoft yeah. has worked quite well for us because it anonymizes the call so the, the patient doesn't have your personal contact details to get hold of you personally. And you're doing it mostly by phone or by video, Nigel? Mostly by phone. By phone, okay. Yeah, so our group has gone to using um, all Zoom. The advantage of Zoom is that it, you know, you won't share your personal email or phone number with all the patients you're contacting. The downside is, is that they do have to log on to the meeting, but you can actually use FaceTime or Skype or whatever, the HIPAA requirements have been relaxed at this stage. We've used Epic. There's a build right in Epic where just in the patient uh, appointment, a little video icon, you click it and a box opens up and it all goes into the chart. We're using doxy.me, which is uh, a video, and we send them a link before their appointment and then you just open it up and they see you and they can upload documents if you want to show if they want to show you something and I think they really enjoy the face to face. There's a question about how you build for these and we've got instructed by our compliance people that you can build just as you would for a clinic visit. Correct. The video visits are for at least all commercial carriers right now at least in our region are billing like a inpatient visit or a face to face visit. Telephone visits are not. So video visits uh, from a billing perspective are equivalent at this time to a face-to-face -face visit, at least in our region. That may be regional, though. Let me ask, who are you actually then seeing in your clinics? Uh, if your clinics are being shut down or limited, what patients do you feel either need to be seen or are you physically seeing, given all the limitations being put on us right now? Maybe Ken Eagle. Ken, because you guys are living it right now. Are you seeing anybody in your offices right now? Yeah, I mean, we I see new patients with acute fractures. The post-ops we're doing, we, we use uh, the video function through Epic. And, uh, you know, people who want to be in touch or longer-term follow-up, we do the video visits. But we don't, you know, we're not turning down anybody, but really strongly encouraging people not to come in at this point unless there's a problem, you know, there's a concern about a post-op wound or something like that. They need the stitches out, something something like that. Otherwise, we're not seeing anybody, really. Okay. Anybody else? Uh, Samir, this is Andy. We, we've been instructed for the last couple of weeks to eliminate anything that's non-essential from clinic. And, you know, we can, you know, obviously the, the potential wound infections, the patients that need a cast change or something like that, we're trying to figure out alternatives for some of those things. But our leadership has sort of said that if a visit will keep the patient out of the emergency room, 
then um, it's, it's probably a worthwhile visit. So we're, we're still figuring it out as we go. Um, but I, we've, we've managed to reduce our clinic volumes to about a quarter to a third of what they typically are. And some of it is, is interestingly, our no-show rate hasn't changed. <laughs> a lot of patients are just choosing not to come in. Um, but just, just by, by working ahead and calling patients and doing telephone encounters, uh, we've, we've been able to eliminate you know, over half of our visits. On that note, it is 9.30. I'll be respectful of everybody's time on this Friday evening. Uh, I will leave you with this slide from Dr. Brennan's presentation on the at least the downtown scenarios here in Philadelphia, just as an example of how social contact and spread can have an impact. Our, our group from New York and the UK, it's been very sobering. I appreciate all the faculty's time this evening, particular thanks to the OTA staff for really scrambling to put this together. There is a demand from our, our membership to do this sooner rather than later. We will have another webinar April 2nd discussing very similar, if not the same issues, but hopefully at that point we'll have more information. As you can see, this is rapidly changing. And with that, uh, I wish you all to be safe. Don't touch your face, wash your hands, and we will connect again uh, later this week. Thank you again to everyone for participating. The OTA Podcast Committee would like to thank our panel, as well as the OTA leadership, for pulling together the resources to get these webinars and podcasts out to our members and others in the orthopedic community. In an upcoming episode in the COVID-19 series, we will hear from an orthopedic resident who is now working with his medical colleagues to care for patients on the front line. Thank you for listening to the OTA Podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.